Good morning. My name is Caleb. I'm one of the pastors at Grace. Two years ago, I got the assignment of preaching on the Sunday after the wine tasting, and I had no idea what I was getting into. This year, I find myself in the same position, aware of, uh, <laughs> of, of uh, the previous night's events. It was great to be with so many of you last night, and um, it's such a great celebration of what, what the people that God has brought to this community and where this community is going. Um, yeah, it was great to be with you all last night. There's no title in the bulletin for this homily. Um, I find it better to title your sermons after you preach them, because uh, then you know what you're actually talking about. And um, I feel particularly uh, that way about this sermon. Um, I'm curious what its title will be after I'm done preaching this sermon. We'll find out together. And before we read the second lesson, let's, let's pray um, for God to reveal himself to us. God, we... Where should we turn? You have the words of life. Pray that we would have ears to hear. In Jesus' name, amen. Second Kings 2. Second Kings is is the sequel to 1 Kings as really just one book, but they broke it up to make the books shorter. They're both books of the history of Israel found in the First Testament, the Old Testament we call it. Um, what else do you need to know? Uh, Elijah is a prophet. Prophets were people who, 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 who spoke on behalf of God to rulers, to kings, to the people of God, to the, to the world. Um, so we're here in 2 Kings 2 this morning. We're going to see, we're going to have three scenes from the life of Elijah and Elisha. Three scenes that each, I think, teach us something about the Spirit of God. 2 Kings 2. Now when the Lord was about to take Elijah up to heaven by a whirlwind, Elijah and Elisha were on their way from Gilgal. Elijah said to Elisha, stay here, for the Lord has sent me as far as Bethel. But Elisha said, As the Lord lives and as you yourself live, I will not leave you. So they went down to Bethel. The company of prophets who were in Bethel came out to Elisha and said to him, Do you know that today the Lord will take your master away from you? He said, Yeah, I know. Keep silent. Elijah said to him, Elisha, stay here, for the Lord has sent me to Jericho. But he said, As the Lord lives and as you yourself live, I will not leave you. So they came to Jericho, the company of prophets who were at Jericho drew near to Elisha and said to him, Do you know that today the Lord will take your master away from you? And he answered, Yes, I know. Be silent. Then Elijah said to him, Stay here, for the Lord has sent me to the Jordan. But he said, As the Lord lives and as you yourself live, I will not leave you. So the two of them went on. Fifty men of the company of the prophets also went and stood at some distance from them as they were both standing by the Jordan, the Jordan River. Then Elijah took his mantle and rolled it up and struck the water and the water was parted to the one side and to the other until the two of them crossed on dry ground. When they had crossed, Elijah said to Elisha, tell me what I may do for you before I am taken from you. Elisha said, please, Let me inherit a double share of your spirit. And he responded, You've asked a hard thing, yet if you see me as I'm being taken from you, it will be granted to you. If not, it will not. 
As they continued walking and talking, a chariot of fire and horses of fire separated the two of them, and Elijah ascended in a whirlwind into heaven. Elisha kept watching and crying out, Father, Father, the chariots of Israel and its horsemen. But when he could no longer see him, he grasped his own clothes and tore them in two pieces. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Scene one, Elijah the hero. Elijah has just come down from Mount Carmel. He was up there in the sort of contest we all wish we could have to prove our faith. It was Elijah alone against 450 prophets of Baal. And the 450 prophets danced all day trying to get Baal to send down fire on an altar to prove that Baal was surely God. They failed And it was Elijah's turn to prove that Yahweh was truly God. He had three tractor loads of drought time water poured onto the altar. And then he prayed and said, God, show up. And God showed up and the fire came down. And the prophets of Baal didn't even try to argue that it was lightning that had caused the fire. They were sure that Yahweh was God I tried to reenact this as a child in my bathtub after hearing the story, and it never worked. But it works for Elijah, and the fire comes down. Yet, in the next scene, Elijah has run off to, where is it? He's, he's, he's run off to Beersheba, which is like not where he's supposed to be. And then he travels one day's journey into the wilderness. He's got nowhere in mind. And he says, God, take my life. I'm done. And an angel says, get up and eat. And so he goes to Mount Horeb and he hides in a cave and God says, what are you doing here? And Elijah says, I've been a prophet, but I'm the only one left and I'm going to die soon too. He is in suicidal despair, even after God has just shown up on Mount Carmel. God, then he's in this cave and there's an earthquake and there's a wind and there's a fire that smite the side of the mountain. But God is not in any of those. And then there's a still whisper and Elijah falls to his face and covers his head and God is present. And God says to him, get up. And go, find Elisha, son of Shaphat, and anoint him as your successor. That's the first scene. The Old Testament is full of stories about people who shouldn't have accomplished what they accomplished. And the image of the transfiguration is a reminder of of that. It's a dazzling scene washed in heavenly light. But the silhouette uh, of the man with the staff is Moses. And before Moses represented all of the law before Israel, before Moses led the people out of Israel, he was a shepherd of 40 years with a mad stutter who was not the prototype for leading anyone anywhere. That's the man who stands with the staff next to Jesus in the transfiguration. And next to him is Elijah, 
He's the silhouette with the mantle around his shoulders. And Elijah has more self-doubt, has more doubt in God and despair. And at a number of different times in his life, he considers ending his life, asking God to take his life. Elijah paves the way for the likes of Jonah, another prophet we find with his arms crossed in a wilderness that he's not supposed to be in, or for doubting Thomas, who is somewhere else when Jesus appears to the disciples and has a hard time believing that Jesus is really risen. We make biblical characters into heroes, but the lesson from our first scene is not be like Elijah. Elijah has his great moments, his shining moments of faith, but he also has more moments of insecurity, more moments of wondering and wandering, wondering if God is really going to pull through and can he even pull through? And perhaps that's what's most inspiring about his story is that he's not so unlike me. Maybe he's not so unlike you. We turn biblical characters into heroes and the morals of their story often become about them. Be like them. Follow Elijah's model. Elijah's got the formula to call fire down from heaven. Be like Elijah. But when the author first describes Elijah, he writes ingloriously, Now Elijah was a hairy man with a leather belt. That's who Elijah is. Elijah's story and Elisha's is about the prophetic spirit of God working through the very broken, very human people like Elijah in order to reconcile all things to himself. God is the main character. In this story, it's the spirit of God. It's God's prophetic spirit that is the main character. And the encouragement we take from this opening scene is that even in Elijah's brokenness, his wandering, his self-doubt, God is faithful and pursues him, and his weaknesses become opportunities for God to display his faithfulness. Scene two. Elijah has just heard from God the instructions to go find Elisha, son of Shaphat. So he leaves the mountain, and he comes down and finds the land of Shaphat. Somehow, maybe he knows him, maybe other people know him. Um, He finds the land of Shaphat. There's a field, and in the field there are 12 rows of oxen, two oxen in each, 24 oxen total. Behind, behind each yoked oxen, there's a man standing there plowing, and he gets to the field, and he's told that the 12th man in the final row is Elisha, the man that he's looking for. And so Elijah walks down to Elisha. He takes off his mantle, and he puts it around Elisha's sweaty shoulders, and he walks away. Elisha's, I, I mean, I wonder, you know, this is, this is weird. Uh, I wonder what Elisha thought, but Elisha has the cloak upon him, and he, he knows what it means. He knows the symbolic moment that's happening. And so he chases down Elijah, and he says, let me go kiss my father and my mother. And Elijah says, go back. Do you know what I've done to you? It's very cryptic. I don't know what that means. Elijah seems despondent. He's, 
he, he leaves Elisha out to dry. He's testing Elisha to see how committed he is to this new calling, if he's really worthy of this mantle that Elijah's going to bestow upon him. So he tells Elisha, go back. And Elisha goes back, but he doesn't go back and kiss his father and his mother. He goes back and he takes an axe to his plow and he chops it up into wood and he starts a fire and he slaughters the oxen. And he says to the whole, he invites the whole community, and everyone in the community comes and feasts. It's a, it's it's another symbol for um, Elisha is burning his bridges. He's saying, "This is no longer my vocation. This gave me a livelihood, but I'm moving on to something else." And apparently, it convinces Elijah that Elisha is worthy of following him around. That's scene two. Elijah calling Elisha. They were tough times. Elijah believed he was the last remaining faithful person to God. There were prophets who were faithful to other gods. That's those community of prophets that showed up in our passage. They're groups of prophets that served different courts, different kings, different priests, different gods that they represented. They'd be called upon when, 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 when the god of rain was needed. Well, then Baal, the prophets of Baal, would go to the ruler and they'd help. So there are all these schools of prophets that exist, but Elijah believed he was the last one faithful to Yahweh. That's how it felt. I mean, Ahab and Jezebel were on the throne who are notorious for killing people to get what they want. I mean, they are as evil as it comes. Elijah's name means Yahweh is God, and it was that simple message he was trying to communicate, though at times even he had a hard time believing it. At one point, things got so difficult that an angel appears and says, the journey is too much for you. It's almost as if God has sent a messenger, go see how bad it really is with Elijah. And the angel gets there and is like, oh no, it's bad. He's in trouble. The journey is too much for you, Elijah. Get up and eat. Perhaps it is because God knows how tired, how worn, how desperate Elijah is that he sends him Elisha. Because God's work of reconciling all things to himself is accomplished not by one person, but by God's spirit through a community of broken people. We like to misquote 1 Corinthians 10.13. We say, um, God never gives us more than we can handle. But that's not true, is it? (laughs) We misquote that verse. First, that's not what the verse says. Secondly, I'm guessing I can get some witnesses in this room who can testify to the fact that sometimes life sends you more than you can handle. Usually when we misquote that verse to ourselves, we tighten our belt a bit, we gird up our loins, we convince ourselves we can make it through, we grit a little harder, and maybe that works in a situation. Or we say... God won't let more come at me than I can handle. And we feel guilty and beat ourselves up when in fact we're in way over our heads and we need help. Elijah needs help and God doesn't tell him to buck up and figure it out. He says, the journey is too much for you. I'm going to send you to Elisha because you need help. Moses is commissioned to go to Pharaoh and to free the people 
But he says, I cannot do this. And maybe we read that as a lack of faith or, or fear that Moses shouldn't have had, but maybe it's wisdom because God responds and says, you're right, Aaron's on his way. And when Jesus cannot carry his own cross, Simon of Cyrene is called out of the crowd to carry it for him. Have you thought of that? That Jesus couldn't carry his cross? And so if you can't carry your cross, maybe that's okay? The prophetic spirit of God is given to broken people who need each other. Broken people in community to call the world to worship and to justice with the same spirit that the prophets Elijah and Elisha had. What is more beautiful than when someone in our community is willing to allow others to carry them? What is more beautiful than a community of people who are ready to carry each other, where that's the expectation? It's beautiful. On the regular, it seems, we are given more than we can handle. We're sold the mantra, I don't need anybody, I have everything I need in this self-contained unit, but none of us is made to journey alone, and that's why on our website we have that line, no one of us believes as much or as well as all of us do together in community. Elijah faces more than he can handle, but God provides food in the wilderness and a successor. That's scene two. Scene three. Elisha travels with Elijah for a few years, it seems, learning from him when to speak, when not to speak, when to be confident, when to be cautious. He learns the trade of being a prophet, how to listen to God, how to speak for God. And then it becomes obvious that Elijah's days are finally approaching. Maybe Elijah has said as much, or maybe he's getting old, and it's clear that he can't carry on much longer. But the other groups of prophets have heard about it, and they wonder if this is the end of the Yahweh tradition. Elijah had a good run, props, he did some miracles, a lot of respect, but skepticism about whether Elisha is really going to inherit the powers that Elijah had as a prophet. Three times, Elijah tries to lose Elisha, or perhaps he's testing Elisha's commitment. But Elisha is relentless. He's determined to be there, to take up the mantle. Elisha is a corrective to Elijah's self-doubt. Elisha seems convinced that this is his calling, that he's supposed to be doing this. And so he won't let Elijah out of his sight. When Elijah sees that Elisha's still with him, he asks, what do you want? And Elisha asks for a double share or a double portion of Elijah's spirit. He does not ask for twice as much of Elijah's spirit. What he asks is for a double portion. The double portion phrase is, is, is in Deuteronomy, what was given to the firstborn son. And so it wasn't twice as much, but it was twice as much as the other kids were going to get. And so Elisha is not asking for twice as much of Elijah's power to do miracles. He's asking to be his child. He's asking to be considered his son, to inherit what Elijah had. Which is why when Elijah is eventually taken up in a whirlwind, he shouts, Father, Father, in the hope and conviction that maybe he will be like an adopted son to Elijah and inherit what Elijah had on this earth. And when 
after Elijah is finally taken away, uh, Elisha grasps his own clothes and he tears them in two, which is where our, our, our text ends. He tears them in two and when the dust settles from the whirlwind, he sees that Elijah is gone, but laying there is the mantle. The mantle that first called him to be a prophet is laying there in the dust for him to pick up and he goes to it and he picks it up. And he wears it. And all the prophets are still watching. And Elijah puts the mantle on. Does he have the power? Does he have the power of Elijah? And he walks back down the path that they came from to the Jordan River. And he saw Elijah do it. (laughs) So he takes the mantle off. And he rolls it up tight. And just like Elijah, he gives the river a slap. And the waters separate. And the prophets that are watching nearby are shocked that the Spirit of God wasn't stuck with Elijah, but was transferred on to Elisha. And Elisha goes into his prophetic ministry. And it's a very different ministry than Elijah's. It's, it's interesting to note the differences. I can imagine Elisha following Elijah around thinking, mm, I might have done that different. Um, He's much more diplomatic. He gets involved with with foreign powers. Anyways, it's really interesting to see how they're different. But in this moment, he's just, he's doing exactly what Elijah did. He's like, well, I don't know. Roll it up, see what happens. And he strikes the river and it separates. And at first glance, this story seems to be just the glorious cap to Elijah's career. Elijah represents all of the prophets. And so it seems like maybe that's what this story is about. But The story is actually about God's spirit, not Elijah the hero. It's about the fact that Yahweh was still God. Even though Elijah was gone, even though it often appeared to be otherwise, Yahweh was still God, and the spirit of God that rested upon Elijah didn't go with him. It stayed with the people. The same spirit that caused the Jordan River to split when the people of God first come into the promised land was the same spirit that was upon Elijah, is the same spirit that's now upon Elisha who splits the Jordan River. Moses and Elijah appear with Jesus on the Mount of Transfiguration and they represent the law and the prophets and Jesus is the fulfillment of both He is the heir of the prophetic tradition of Israel. And he's baptized in the same Jordan River that Elijah and Elisha miraculously cross over and anointed at his baptism by the same spirit that Elijah and Elisha carry. And God's prophetic spirit rests upon Christ. And in Christ, all are given his prophetic spirit, which calls the world to worship and justice. All are invited to become adopted sons and daughters who cry, Father, Father, are anointed by the same Spirit that is at work reconciling all things to himself. At Easter, we celebrate the triumph of God's reconciling work over the brokenness and division of the world. We celebrate that the mantle of Elijah has been passed on to Elisha and that in Christ it's the same mantle that we can put on. During Lent, We make space for that spirit to search us. We join Elisha, maybe, in tearing our clothes. Putting on the new clothing of Christ, preparing for that mantle which comes at Easter. We unmask our weakness and brokenness with the confidence that perhaps it is precisely through those things, through our weakness, through our brokenness, that God will call us to join him 
in the prophetic work of calling all people to worship and to justice. And Ash Wednesday, we'll have an Ash Wednesday service this Wednesday, Little Street Loft, 7 o'clock. Um, at, West, at Ash Wednesday, what we say, we join Elijah in saying that the journey is too much for us. And God responds, stand and eat. We say, I cannot do this on my own. God says, I have sent a helper, and I have given you each other. During Lent, we say that the old clothing will not suffice. And at Easter, God says, behold, everything old has passed away, and see, I am making all things new. At Easter, we are invited to put on the mantle of new life, the mantle of Elijah, the same spirit that was upon Elijah and Elisha and in Christ is offered to us. Let's pray. God, you make all things new. And your mercies are new every morning. I pray that the same spirit that has come behind us would go before us and would be upon us. That we would sense the peace and the courage that come with knowing that we wear the mantle of Christ. In the name of the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen.